This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property or at least as much as we can fit into this short show format. So we're going to have a little bit of a look at some interesting changes to the city centre of Palmerston North, uh, housing development happening in the VIN and then we're going to go a bit further afield and talk about the market and what's been happening, what's happening with the ghost houses that have been in the media a bit lately and if we have time later on, a story warning of a story from Airbnb. So we'll come to that later as well. So it was really good to see recently that this headline was in the paper by Janine Rankin on stuff.co.nz. Hotel plans will revive Palmerston North's old post office building. My father used to work in the post office savings bank for many years, about 25, 30 years. And in fact, he worked in the very building that is, is also known as the building that was High Flyers in the middle of town. So this article says a central Palmerston North eyesore and heritage building, most recently known as High Flyers, will be restored to glory, possibly including the reinstatement of its clock tower. Who knew it had a clock tower? I, I did not, but you might be a little older than me and uh, remember that. So the developer Safari Group has an unconditional contract to buy the former post office building on the square. Its plans to restore the currently dilapidated building and build a five-storey, 86-room, Wyndham-branded hotel and health spa, complete with retailing, a conference room and a gym. Safari Group director Damien Taylor said the company was excited to bring a world-class hotel brand into the city centre. Palmas North has long been on our radar, he said, and the right opportunity has presented itself. He said the company had worked with heritage buildings before and understood what it would take to restore the old post office to its former splendour and create an asset the community would be proud of. Sounds really exciting and that was one of the challenges for trying to sell the High Flyers building was the sheer amount of work needing to be done which includes, uh, to the best of my understanding, earthquake strengthening. Taylor said while design work was at an early stage, intention was to restore the parapet and decorative features of the two-storey building facade. The new five-level building in behind would be linked with a joint double-height glazed atrium that would serve as a city as the hotel's entry lobby. He said some existing materials from the interior of the building would be salvaged and reused. When we uh, see a design about that or see some plans, I'll make sure I let you know here on Property Matters so we can have a look at uh, where, where those are at. So t- Taylor hoped the building would begin in late 2023. Uh, late next year, of course, with a target for completion of the $50 million development in mid-2025. So that's something that will be, will be great. It'll be lovely to see that building uh, restored and uh, finding use in a facility that's of a standard that'll be really good for attracting people. Um, the original building was um, a 1905 Edwardian building as part of the memoryscape of the city, according to Palmerston North historian Margaret Tennant. It was symbolic of the role of government functions in the city and a historical anchor point around the square. 
The chimes in its original clock tower, named after Rangatane chief Kiriti Pano, excuse the pronunciation, had been removed after the 1942 Wairapa earthquake and now rang in the clock tower in the centre of the square. The building ceased working as a post office in 1988, became after an episode as uh, as the High Flyers Bar and Nightclub. It's sat empty since 2017, and there has been a few uh, antisocial elements and antisocial things happening there. So moving on to Levin, this article from the Horofenua Mail. Levin to get more Kainga Order housing after purchase of land. So Kainga Order hopes the purchase of a block of Levin land will help take some of the pressure off Horofenua's social housing waiting list, which has increased over 500% in six years. The government housing provider has purchased the large plot at 123 Kawiu Road to build more houses, adding to the 157 homes it already has in the town and the 184 it has in Horofenua. According to the property records, the plot's 31,699 square metres. Now, Levin in the wider area is actually experiencing significant population growth, with Horofenua's population growing more than 5,000 in the last eight years. On current estimates, another 26,000 are expected to call Horofenua home by 2040, which is an increase of 71%. I think a lot of this is to do with the improved and increasingly improved infrastructure and roading, making Levin travel um, much easier. Horofenua also experienced massive demand for social housing, with the Kaingawara waiting list for Horofenua going from 36 families in June of 2017 to 237 families in June of 2022. Uh, there is the social housing project in Hinimoa Street, which has helped a bit to alleviate the issues. But uh, Kaingawara's regional dire- director, Graham Broderick, said the demand for social housing had increased steadily over the years. He says, we're so pleased that through this land purchase we'll be able to provide a place to call, call home for so many families. So planning's at the early stage but the site could be used for medium-density public housing with a range of different-sized homes. And again, uh, plans will be shared once they're more detailed, and we can bring that to you here on Property Matters as well. Now, in the news lately, it has been talk about ghost homes. And this was the idea that there is a whole bunch of houses, and they had focused a bit on Auckland, that are just sitting empty. And... It says in this article by Geraldine Khan that the government scraps na- the national scheme aimed at filling ghost homes. So property demand continues to outstrip supply and it's driving the record median prices even higher. And in Auckland, where the average house price is more than a million dollars, there's a jarring number of empty derelicts. A government project aimed at filling empty ghost homes will not be pursued after a half-million-dollar investigation and trial. The government paid community organisation Wise Group to investigate the number of ghost homes, why they were empty and how long for, and to run a trial in Hamilton to test methods of getting empty homes filled. Wise Group's work began in March of 2021 and a plan for a national scheme was produced but ultimately the idea was scrapped. The process of working with owners to fill their empty properties was deemed too complex and the number of true ghost homes found to be relatively small. So it's more of a media beat-up really this one. So according to the 2018 census data, Wise Group wrote there were nearly 95,000 empty dwellings across Aotearoa. However, a survey of owners of empty homes suggested only 10% intentionally kept their properties empty. 
The survey, which received responses from 772 owners, found the vast majority kept the empty homes as holiday homes, second homes, or were vacant rental properties or under renovation. So when they delved into it, there's actually not a whole lot of ghost homes, that they're actually uh, being used for other purposes. Long-term vacant dwellings make up only a proportion of unoccupied dwellings, a Ministry of Housing and Urban Development spokesperson said. It is generally accepted globally that a small percentage of homes will naturally, due to a range of factors, be unoccupied at any one point of time. The spokesman said the study indicated there were no low-hanging fruit to make empty homes available as rental properties. Wise Group Board Chair Julie Nelson said, while the organisation respected the Ministry's decision, it believed any programme that worked to increase housing supply in the country was work worth doing. We know that innovation projects of this nature need time to become well-established and to achieve the desired returns, Nelson said. She said, in the absence of government funding, Wise Group would support other organisations through an Empty Homes Starter Kit, which was developed as part of the project and had been made freely available online. So a little over a quarter of ghost home owners surveyed, their, uh, surveyed said their properties have been empty for more than a year, with the majority empty for shorter periods. So uh, it's really the ghost home numbers were overstated um, quite considerably. The government did not publish the final report or kit, but gave Wise Group permission to do so, and the group published the report online. The spokesman pointed to Auckland as an example of how the ghost home number could be overstated. We've previously seen headlines in Auckland referring to 40,000 ghost homes, but that's a misleading figure, the spokesperson said. In reality, of the just over 39,000 properties in Auckland that were unoccupied on census night, 22,500 were because the residents were away, and only 17, just over 17,000 were actually empty. So the number of empty homes amounted only to 3.2% of the total dwellings. And as mentioned, quite a lot of those can be holiday homes, um, apartments and so forth that people are actually using but might be empty at the time of the census. So a little bit of market news here. Credit rating agency Moody's has said a soft landing for the New Zealand economy is looking increasingly unlikely after the Reserve Bank raised the official cash rate recently by 50 basis points to 3.5% on Wednesday. The rate hike is actually the sixth this year and the fifth consecutive 50 uh, point basis point rise and prompted the National Party Finance spokesperson Nicola Willis to warn that homeowners are in for a pummeling. The rate rise comes amid the growing schism between economists who argue central banks need to keep aggressively raising interest rates to be sure of quickly conquering inflation and those counselling more caution in light of the time lag involved in monetary policy and the growing fears of a global recession. Looking across the Tasman, the Reserve Bank of Australia surprised analysts on Tuesday by only raising its official cash rate by 25 basis points to 2.6, with its Governor Philip Lowe noting its cash rate had increased substantially in the short period of time and explaining it was assessing the outlook for inflation and economic growth. But New Zealand's Reserve Bank said after a review of monetary policy uh, last Wednesday that it remained appropriate to continue to tighten monetary conditions at pace to maintain price stability. They said that core consumer price inflation is too high and labour resources are scarce. It seems like a, a bit of an ongoing merry-go-round, this one, where uh, if the interest rates go up, mortgages are more expensive, um, people that own homes have a bit less money to spend, uh, and the renters uh, 
rents might likely go up because the, everything else is going up in terms of costs for the owners of those properties. So a recent decline in oil prices and easing in some supply chain constraints has seen headline inflation measures fall in some countries, but the core measures of inflation have risen and persist. So while interest rates around the world suggest a weaker growth outlook for New Zealand's trading partners, domestic spending had remained resilient in the face of slowing global growth and higher domestic interest rates. What, what does all this mean? Well, it means that they had considered putting it up point. Uh, 75 basis points instead of 50 um, and so they've um, relatively speaking uh, it's going to be interesting to see where things go next. The bank commented that after that it may follow up with a further 50 basis point rate rise in November which could take the OCR to 4% and there's no clear consensus on how much higher the rate might go next year. So as people come off fixed term interest rates and are looking to Uh, refix. It's a possibility and it's being um, telegraphed in the media that it's going to go up again. So really it's it's just tricky uh, to, if you're coming off a fixed term, even if it's a year or two, um, you can be finding that the interest rates are up to uh, doubling and that's a big whack out of a household budget, particularly for people who have purchased in the last year or two. So what's happening with the market with well, this article here uh, from Stuff Business, Rob Stock, is generally summarises what's happening. It says overly optimistic asking prices for homes two months are behind uh, two months behind actual sales prices, and this is a phenomenon where uh, the asking prices stay up a bit while the sales prices uh, go down. It's typical of this part of the property cycle. So reality is biting, it says, for people selling their homes with asking prices down 7.2% since January, data from property advertising site realestate.co.nz shows. So they're not talking about the sales prices, they're saying the asking prices are down 7.2%. So the average asking price peaked in January at $992,000 and the average asking price has now dropped to $921,000 in September. Despite there being buyers, markets nationally and in three regions, average asking prices haven't dropped significantly. Year-on-year prices were up or stable in all except two regions, says Vanessa Williams, the spokesperson for realestate.co.nz. But whether the sellers actually get the price they're asking for is another matter. And it appears that the sellers' asking prices take up to two months to respond to falling house prices. So what happens is properties take longer to sell and those people that uh, need to sell then have to reduce their expectations on uh, on what they might achieve. And property data company CoreLogic said the house prices peaked in November in most locations and could now fall between 10-15% from that peak. William said that when realestate.co.nz had matched its asking prices against sales data from the Real Estate Institute, it found an asking price lag of about six to eight weeks in the falling market. So the asking prices are gathered from sellers when they list their properties, but uh, vendors choose whether to have them included in their adverts, which means they're not often disclosed. William said sellers' price expectations indicated that despite some downward movement in prices, the market wasn't crashing. It appears that we are now seeing the market settle post-pandemic, she said. But Williams said if 
Asking prices continue to trend down at the same rate of around $10,000 per month until Christmas. It could take the asking prices back to mid-2021 levels. Bank economists expect continued falls, including the real value of property, as inflation erodes the spending power of every dollar in a homeowner's pocket. ASB has expected a 12% drop in nominal house prices, which would be equivalent to 20% when adjusted for inflation. ANZ has forecast the house price falls to drop 15% from 12% previously. So the banks are sort of suggesting it's going to continue. Remember, it's just coming back down of that really overinflated and heated situation. Again, the government's taken heat out the market by removing a lot of buyers or the ability for buyers to be able to buy. So the average asking price in Auckland fell 2.1% in September to 1.16 billion, uh, million, I should say. Gee, I almost said billion there. Now, asking prices did increase uh, compared to a year ago in Gisborne, Hawke's Bay, here in Manawatu, Coromandel in the central North Island. Also, sellers are becoming more active, so there's 12% more properties being put up for sale this September when compared to September last year. So, as I mentioned, it is generally slower, takes a bit longer, but there are still buyers out there. In saying that, it is approaching the best time to buy for a little while, so there are plenty of opportunities there to negotiate. Another thing that's majorly changed if you're looking at buying is that you may not be competing directly against other offers. Uh, When you are competing against other offers, uh, you tend to have to put your best offer in first go and hopefully have that accepted. Whereas now, in many cases, it's gone back to the way things are in a more normal market where uh, people are negotiating um, and just with one party and hoping to find uh, a middle ground. Also in the market, new home consents level off, but the construction pipeline is strong, according to uh, Stuff Code NZ property reporter Miriam Bell. So consents for new homes have flattened off, but at near record levels, um, and this should support strong housing construction for the next year. There were a bit over 50,500 new homes consented in the year ending August, and that's up 8.9% on the same time last year. But that figure was well down on May, where there was a record of 51,000 consents issued. On a seasonally adjusted basis, consents have been volatile recently. They were down 1.6 in August, and after a 5% increase in July, and a 2.2% fall in June. A little bit hard to, to make a, some statements based around that. Uh, but there is annual increase in some areas, and um, Northland and Southland, uh, Wellington, Auckland, have um, high consents. I'll just see if there's some information here uh, more locally. Unfortunately, there isn't, which is sometimes the case in these national articles. So it is taking a little bit. Uh, report, builders have reported a drop in inquiries, um, which is suggesting easing in residential construction later in 2023. And higher interest rates and tight access to finance are expected to weigh in on construction demand. And that's where the buyers that are most active in the market at the moment are people who actually already own property and are probably upsizing or downsizing as a generalisation. So those people are still having life changes, uh, which mean that they are still buying and selling property. Where the brakes have come on is the real difficulty for first home buyers to 
be able to lend to buy properties or to be able to service a mortgage uh, given the changes in the interest rates. And with investors, a number of the removal of a number of uh, tax benefits and so forth, uh, coupled with the rising prices and the increased interest rates have meant that it's really not too much of a favourable time for investors at the moment. They are still active, but uh, just not as many as uh, there may otherwise be. A petition asking for national recognition of tiny homes has failed. A petition to Parliament to have tiny homes recognised as affordable, safe and healthy, durable and permanent style of accommodation has failed. So Andrew Crisp secured 4,097 signatures for his petition calling on MPs to recognise tiny homes as a way of tackling New Zealand's housing crisis. He'd asked the MPs to pass laws recognising tiny or mobile dwellings and creating national tiny home standards, but Parliament's Transport and Infrastructure Select Committee rejected the call. The committee issued a report on Friday rejecting CRISP's call for a new dwelling classification for tiny homes as chattel dwellings. He proposes that this would include mobile homes, house trailers, tiny homes, cabins and cottages on wheels and homes that can be transported on skids and lifted into place as a prefabricated unit without being permanently fixed to a foundation, the committee report said. However, transportable homes that are not permanently attached to land and annexed to a land title did not fit within current real estate law, Crisp told the committee. And that was holding back the potential for providing decent dwellings for people in cities like Auckland, he said. Andrew Crisp uh, says that he's maintained that a legally recognised chattel dwelling classification would enable such homes to be financed and insured. Crisp sees the tiny homes as preferable to substandard living conditions experienced by many New Zealanders who currently live in overcrowded homes or cars, garages and caravans. There are currently about 50 manufacturers of tiny homes and Crisp's petition was accompanied by a draft act and standard prepared by the Mobile Home Manufacturers Association. When Crisp presented his petition to the select committee, he said there was a prejudice against tiny homes, perhaps as, as people saw them as opening the door to North American-style trailer parks. So that's where a little bit of an update on that. So no changes at the moment, um, and uh, we'll just probably have to watch that space. I don't know where, whether at any stage the government will decide that, the, that that is a possibility. This article from overseas uh, and, and was on stuff under travel by April Glover says wedding party left stranded after discovering an Airbnb in Australia was still a construction site. So an Australian family who booked an Airbnb for a week-long stay were left stranded after discovering the property was still under construction. In a series of TikTok videos, Renee Menzies revealed her sister and 11 other relatives travelled to Byron Bay for a wedding and had booked a luxury property on the accommodation app. Upon arriving at the Airbnb in Suffolk Park, a suburb in the northern New South Wales town, the family was horrified to find an unlivable construction site instead of the promised villa. My family turned up to this today, Menzies said in her video, a completely vacant home in the middle of a massive renovation. So you can see pictures on stuff under the travel section. A clip of the Airbnb showed the property was incomplete with no furniture, no floorboards or even a working kitchen. The walls were also half-painted and it was clear the accommodation was not ready to house guests. Meanwhile, the original booking on the Airbnb website appears to show a luxury villa with a backyard pool and deck. 
Turn her caption, Menzies also accused Airbnb of ignoring her sister's complaints and refusing to help them find alternative accommodation. No warning, and when they rang you for, for help, you accused them of lying. Wouldn't help find somewhere else to stay and wouldn't provide them a refund, she wrote. She also wrote she left 12 people and three kids under three literally standing on the side of the road. The following day, Menzies and her family had still not reached a resolution with Airbnb about the half-finished property. Still no communication from you after our family turned up to us yesterday, left stranded on the side of the road with the three toddlers and nowhere to go, she added. So after several days, Airbnb got in touch with Menzies' sister and offered 30% off the bill, which would total around 800 Australian dollars. The Airbnb also only offered the family a discount on three nights and the booking was for seven days. So as a result of the unlivable property, the family were forced to fork out hundreds on alternative accommodation in Byron Bay. Makes absolutely no sense, a furious Menzies continued. So what was the outcome of this? In a statement to Newsweek, Airbnb said it was disappointed to hear of the unsatisfactory customer experience. This is what they said. We're disappointed to learn about this experience and have fully refunded the guest and provided rebooking assistance, it stated. We've taken the appropriate action on, on the host while we investigate further and reached out to the guest to provide further support. In the rare, rare event something isn't as expected on arrival for our stay, our community support team is on hand 24-7 to help. Our team is very much focused on ensuring each stay is a positive experience for guests, hosts and the wider community. That's why this year we introduced Air Cover for Guests, the most comprehensive protection and travel included for free with every stay. So it's pretty, um, pretty amazing that, imagine that situation. So you literally turn up for your Airbnb and <laughs> you can't even stay there. You can't live in it. And um, yeah, that's... It begs the question, whose fault is that? Uh, is the owner being misleading by by the owner, I mean the host, being misleading by putting up advertising showing that the property is fine? Uh, can Airbnb go around and check on properties to know? Uh, it's a really tough one. Uh, you don't hear many uh, difficult stories about Airbnb, normally it works very well, but that's just one there, an experience people have had. Begs the question, what would you do if you're in this situation? I guess the only thing is, and luckily they could find alternative accommodation. And that's all we've got time for this week here on Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company. You've been listening to Property, Manager, <laughs> Property Matters, of course, on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson, and you can find the show where all good podcasts are found or on mpr.nz. Until next week, have a lovely week, and I'll bring back to you some new stories around the market in a week's time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.